Thank you so much, uh, Greg and Brian. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here, actually, uh, from this event today. Give us a little background on yourself and how you sort of come into this value-based world. I'm a longtime healthcare analyst. I've been interested in the structure of the healthcare cost problem for a long time. And about five years ago, I became interested in identifying and vetting organizations that consistently deliver very, very high quality and very high health outcomes and and or much lower cost than conventional approaches, particularly in high value niches. So I call that high performance healthcare and it's become sort of a thing. Yeah, it really has. And obviously employers and even the whole healthcare system, you know, we've discussed this a lot, this whole issue. We're paying a lot of money. We're not getting a lot of quality and, and good outcomes. So how do you find these companies and what sort of things are they like? What what are their sort of uh, overall look as you think about them? Well, it turns out they're they're in every niche, and they're they're in places that a lot of times we never thought about. They're in the obvious high value areas like musculoskeletal drug management, imaging management, cardiometabolic management, and so on. But they're they're also better allergy pr- managers, better sleep managers, and and so on. Claims review. You know, you, you mentioned musculoskeletal. What makes issues like musculoskeletal so important? So musculoskeletal is a good example, and you know, to sort of dissect, and you can see it clearly from there. Musculoskeletal conditions eat up 20% of all the money in group health and about 80% of all the money in occupational health. So they're about 27, 28% of the total, total health care spend, and it's an enormous amount of money. It's, it's the single biggest cost item in healthcare. And if you go to conventional orthopedists, they do not have a, a, a reliably accurate diagnostic methodology. So that means that if you take the same problem to different orthopedists, you're likely to get different answers, which sets up the path to wrong treatment pathways from there. The, the best estimates are that about half of all orthopedic services delivered in the U.S. right now are, are inappropriate or unnecessary, and that translates to, just for the inappropriate and unnecessary stuff, about 2.5% of the entire U.S. economy is just stuff we shouldn't be doing in orthopedics to begin with. Wow. And, and one of the examples that we've cited a fair amount around this, and it's been in the news quite a bit, is the Walmart example with, with uh, spines and backs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, what Walmart did was they, they decided that they basically had enough, and they, they established a a center of excellence program where they went for not only for backs but for a range of different of different conditions. I think transplants is one, and uh, I think there are other orthopedic cardiac as oh, well. Car- I think. Yeah, cardiac for and contracted with very specific providers who can consistently demonstrate that they get way better results than than your average provider, and they have been rigorous about that. And and so if you are a Walmart employee or or enrolled in their plan and you have a problem, they will pay for you to go to see that provider, but they're a lot less likely to pay for for you to go to some guy that you think is going to be as good. Right. And part of this, obviously, is they've identified these institutions as high value. So part of that is around their care. But some of what they picked up, at least as I understand from this, 
the uh, back surgery issues was about 40% of the people they sent to those facilities were sent home not needing surgery to begin with. So obviously you're cutting out a huge chunk of utilization, which relates directly to what you were talking about. Absolutely. The, you're, you're making an important point. This is one of the points that um, Tom Emmerich, who used to run benefits for uh, Walmart and who was the one who sort of instituted their center of excellence program originally, he makes this argument a lot. There, there are two components to provider performance under, under his idea. One is simply skill or competence. The other is ethics. Mm-hmm. And many organizations have skill, but they lack somewhat in ethics. And so they will discover that somebody doesn't need a transplant, but the money's so good and they want the experience, so they'll do it anyway. I mean, that's, I mean, it's terrible to talk about that that's what, what one of our problems in healthcare is, but that's the reality of it. Right. And I think the flip side of that also is, and I was talking about this with Kayur a bit, is this idea that not only is it maybe incented because of our fee-for-service system to, to to certain types of behaviors and do more services, but also from a demand side, individuals will go to their provider and say, I want X. And so it really is about also being able to explain to those patients or or individuals that, no, that might not be the right approach. Let's try maybe something more conservative. Yeah. Some of these numbers and situations are dramatic. For example, if I remember the numbers right, something like 20% of all of the patients who are diagnosed with cancer at Walmart are, when they're sent to a place like Mayo, are discovered to not have cancer at all. Wow. Um, which means that you can avoid going through these terrible treatment regimens at immense cost. I mean, this, this is a very serious problem. We, we know that half of everything that's done in, health, in American healthcare provides no value. And we know that not only do providers do these things often unnecessarily, but that they depend on doing them unnecessarily to keep their income up. So how how do employers or brokers or whoever's taking this out of the system identify these groups? What have you done to identify these groups? That's a good question. I started off in my own feeble way by coming up with a set of questions that I asked of every provider that, repre- that, that presented themselves and said, I'm pretty sure I'm a high-performance high provider. And we would, we would ask those questions and, and try to vet them that way. But ultimately, we established, as you're aware, you're involved too, uh, we've, we've become associated with the Validation Institute, which, we, which our team acquired from Intel which is really about determining whether a, an organi- a vendor organization's performance claims match up with the promises that they made. Got it. And I know, you know, I'd mentioned earlier who's the advisor. He's a physician with the, with the Validation Institute and uh, talked a lot about ER utilization and, and other services and how our system's a little bit dysfunctional. As you think about these groups, or these, these various vendors in these spaces, whether it's musculoskeletal or, or other areas, what are some of the things that they bring that makes them different, say, from the standard organizations out there providing these services? What's happened over the last 60 years or so under fee-for-service reimbursement is that, is that treatment pathways have been developed to take advantage of the money rather than to be important clinically. 
So if so, you can see this real clearly in a lot of a lot of the characteristics of our of our health system versus the health systems in Holland or France or Indonesia or what, wherever it is, other other industrialized countries. We simply have have bloated all the treatment pathways to make everything as as lucrative as possible without paying attention to the evidence and what has what what these new organizations represent are people with a lot of expertise in that in that niche revisiting that and saying here's what here's what is proper and and useful in managing a particular kind of care using evidence so we see claims all the time you know, from vendors all the time regarding how, and wild these, and exorbitant claims. wild wild exorbitant claims, and these these organizations make claims too. So, how do they? If you're an employer, is there are they backing up these claims? Are the vendors backing? Yes, up yes, yes. Often not. But what about the ones that we, that you're talking about that have these multiple oh. outcomes? Oh, aren't yes. some of them putting these at risk? Their fees at risk? Yeah, yes, and that I think that's a that's one of the most important new approaches in healthcare is is for example the musculoskeletal vendor that we're we're alluding to will guarantee a 25% reduction in total spend on on musculoskeletal cases for the patients that they have touched they won't they won't make that guarantee on patients they haven't touched but that translates automatically to a 4 to 5% reduction in total spend if if that's all if that's the only thing on the table I mean that that's a big that's a big claim, and organizations that are that feel very strongly that they are that they can positively impact a a a set of conditions are well advised to make a, to make make financial guarantees because that's a way to break into the market. Right. So many of these organizations have guaranteed their results, and and part of that is also understanding how that's measured. Obviously, critical point. Absolutely, and for that, what we would recommend at this point, I think you and I both, is is independent third-party review. Sure. Somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight, who's who's methodologically credible, being willing to review it carefully and say this is real or this isn't real. So it's as I mean, employers, especially we're starting to see the larger self-insured employers say, like a Walmart. I'm going to set up these centers of excellence. I'm going to start driving people to higher quality providers, these high performance, high value providers. What about the small, mid-sized market? Can they consider similar things? If they're self-funded, they can. If they're if they're fully insured, they don't have much much leverage. I mean, they can they can make noise about it, but if they're self-funded, or if they're willing to work with other with other self-funded organizations in some sort of collaborative. I see that beginning to happen now too. We 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 got word in the last week, I think, that that many of the business health coalitions around the country saw a lot of value in what the Validation Institute is doing, and they want to they want us to help them identify which services are real and which ones are not. Mm-hmm. It, it's a slow. I mean, it's a long process. Mm-hmm. We have to undo a lot of stuff that's been in place for a long time. One of the one of the principles that is important to understand here is that what this is about is really having a better deal, you know, having having a better offering from the healthcare marketplace. This is not making a better health system by trying to do it in policy, 
with, an, with the understanding that the policy has been controlled and captured by the healthcare industry itself because Congress and legislatures are so willing, have open arms to bribe. I think it's called lobbying. I mean, you're welcome called, to use the term bribe if you'd like. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, it, my father would say it's a it's a difference without a distinction. You know? Okay. Um, as as you think about these these other employers, what are some of the areas? Obviously, musculoskeletal may be one of them. Big issue. People have low back issues, knee issues, yeah. hips, all of that. What are some of the other areas where there's some innovation you're seeing in terms of delivery and value and quality? It's tremendous. There's there's an explosion in these things. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, we've been talking with organizations that, that do a better job managing sleep, managing allergies, managing cardiometabolic services, but then there's also financial risk management, claims review, for example. Many claims that are that are submitted and that get through are have, have errors in them that nobody ever catches, and there are organizations that specialize in that. Or large claims resolution, somebody gets a bill for $4 million, and you can it turns out you can negotiate it down to 800000 or something. There, there are areas like imaging management, dialysis management, on and on, all kinds of nooks and crannies in healthcare. So for each of those, obviously, that we're, we're now beginning to identify these vendors who do that better, some of them around clinical care, some of them around operational issues. One of the areas I know you focused on a lot because your career was in this area, so you have a deep knowledge of it, is this whole area of primary care, on-site clinic, near-site clinics. Right. Give us some thinking in that. I would divide the, the primary care evolution now. Primary care is undergoing an evolution, and, and there's a lot more power and control that's being vested in primary care that was, that's very unexpected. Primary care has essentially been subjugated by the American health care system for, for 60 years now, and there are organizations that are, that are working in primary care that are now getting hold of most of the premium and are being charged with managing the fullness, the whole, the whole risk piece. I think that you know you're fond of a practice in St. Augustine, Florida, that's done this very, very well for a long time. There are there are a number of practices around the country. In Charlotte, North Carolina, where I moved recently, there are there are two new primary care practices. One has about 100 docs. One has about 50 docs. That each pulled away from from large health systems, which they view as, you know, domineering, and, and they're, they're set up to manage risk, both of them. And what, what effectively is the, is the difference is somebody who says, I'm going to look at, at sore throats and ears, or somebody who says, I'm going to manage the fullness of your health care and costs throughout the, throughout the continuum from my, from my perch in primary care. The, the better ones are, are managing the fullness of the risk, and, and they're learning how to do that. Um, and there are, there's obviously structures in healthcare, I mentioned Humana earlier, mm-hmm. um, that are giving primary care practices 85% of the, of the premium to do that with, and that's going to change everything. I would really divide what, what's happening in primary care between those who are really more old-fashioned primary care, I'm at the front end of the system, I'm going to look at the easy stuff and refer the, refer the, the more expensive stuff or the more complicated stuff, or those who are really using the primary care platform as a, a control tower.
Mm-hmm. And I know I've heard you talk about this a few times. You're thinking about primary care. Some of them are now sort of integrating additional services within that. Uh, you use the term super clinics. Right. So tell us a little bit about these super clinic approaches. The idea of a super clinic is to embed, is to take the high performance services that we have discovered and functionally embed them in, in terms of their availability in primary care. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is simply to make sure that you have access to the very best services that are available and make it ready access. But the other part to it is to make sure that when you're referring downstream, when, when you need to send, send a, a patient to somebody who's no longer at primary care, that they are not being referred into a predatory environment, which is, which is what much of healthcare has become. To give you an example of how important this is, right now the average primary care office visit is about 10 minutes, 7 to 12 minutes. If you, if you have an, an on-site primary care environment, that, that number typically goes to about 20 minutes or, or more sometimes. If you look at, at, at a conventional employer health plan claims data set, between 25 and 35% of all of the employees and, and, and dependents in that population will go to see a specialist during the course of a year. If you look, if you look at one with, a, with a, an on-site clinic in, environment, that number drops to 12, 13%. And the difference between that 12 and 13 and that 25 to 35, you have to understand that for every one of those that was sent to a specialty service unnecessarily, the cost has gone up about 10 to 15 fold over what it would have been if they just received the right answer from primary care. So the numbers are enormous. There's a lot of talk, obviously, primary care, as you said, is going under a huge amount of, of innovation. You know, even CMS now is going to direct contract with primary care in a either 50-50 share or global capitation model. There's this, there's this other category of primary care called DPC. Right. What's your thinking of that, and how does that fit in or not fit in with this type of a model? Well, I think that there, I, I think, first of all, there's not a lot of data on what most DPC organizations have done. And I think that most, or, most DPC organizations want to represent themselves as being advanced medical homes, advanced primary care medical homes, which says that they are actually managing full continuum risk. I don't think that, that, is, that the data supports that yet. They, they sort of sit in a netherland between old-fashioned and, and, the, and the new primary care. And I should have probably started by maybe perhaps defining what direct primary care is. Do you want to give the... Yeah, direct primary care is usually a concierge program. It's, it's where patients pay a primary care physician so much a month to be available to them and they'll take care of most of the issues. The problem tends to be disconnected from the rest of the system and, and, only, and only pays attention to certain kinds of, kinds of, of risk. Is it perhaps cherry-picking? Uh, it could be considered cherry-picking. <laughs> that, that would be a little stronger than I would say myself, but may, maybe that, that's One the other thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think that there are... What's going on in primary care now is very exciting. You should look at companies like Vera Whole Health out of Seattle or Care ATC out of Tulsa or Iora Health out of Boston. And these organizations all get control of the patient and bring to bear a lot of risk management capabilities. Not only, not only clinic, they're not only interested in whether somebody's got a heart condition and, and how to manage that, but whether 
they're buying if they need a if they need an MRI, they're going to get that at a favorable price. Mm-hmm. When you start when you start managing the process at that level, you can have tremendous impact, and those become the drivers of of way way better, more efficient care. Mm-hmm. As you look at these areas like global capitation. Are there any, or even the, uh, let's say someone that comes and says, hey, we're going to reduce your musculoskeletal by 40%. Do you have any concerns? How do you ensure quality? You, you track quality. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only way, to, the only way to, me- to, to monitor it is to measure it. Mm-hmm. And, and anybody who's not measuring, you can't trust anything that they say. So where should that come from? Should that be a, a function of the broker, the TPA, in the case of a self-insured group? Who should be doing that? Well, what I would have said in the past is the broker needs to become aware of these things and bring them. But now that we've developed the validation institute, that's that's the purpose is to have independent third party review to be able to say, here are organizations that that definitively get a positive impact in what they in what they do, or here are organizations that definitively provide superior performance and 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 have been and have been tested on that, and Mm -hmm. and are tested on that periodically. I mean, I think that uh, having having independent third-party review is the optimal. Mm -hmm. And that that becomes a tool then for enlightened brokers and and benefits managers who know that we don't have a dog in the fight and our judgment can generally be trusted. Uh And, And obviously, you know, bringing in a, a, a company that has shown some results, you know, whether through peer-reviewed journals or validation, et cetera, you still have to monitor them. And so somebody needs to be reporting on their outcomes and you need to say, yeah, the way they did that, their methodology was correct and those savings are real. Or not. Or, or, or not, exactly. Or, or not. But or not. whatever it is, it's, a, it's being the umpire in, mm-hmm. in a very complicated industry with a lot of known abusers. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been hammering at this nail for a long time. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm I'm pretty persistent. Yeah, so not very exciting. So what what keeps? Do you think we're going to finally push this thing through? Healthcare has been this immovable object. I what? think that I mean you've been hammering at it for a long time too, <laughs> um, and you're as old as I am. But the the issue is, I am more optimistic about what the future brings in healthcare in America than I think I've ever been in my career. I think that the last couple of years have shown. I mean, there are, we know about 200 or 300 companies out there that are doing healthcare in a better way in their niche. Now they're having a hard time getting market traction because the, the major health plans have the market locked up, but we're making headway. You know, the, there are companies that are, that are contracting with them. There are brokers that are contracting that are, that are bringing them to market, and it's and it's working, and that's only going to accelerate. Mm-hmm. So we've seen the Walmart stuff. Obviously, Montana had some cool stuff where they yeah. reference-based priced their state. State of Utah did some cool stuff around this where they're sending people to get their drugs out of Mexico and pick them up for less money through a, a joint accredited pharmacy, et cetera. What about maybe have we heard anything from – Amazon, ABC, or we what? don't know what they're doing. They're, I guess somebody knows what they're doing, but we don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's fair to say that whatever they're going to do will will be disruptive and will undoubtedly, at some level, bank on the performance of high performers uh-huh. and at, to the exclusion of low performers. And having an operation that's built on that and that does not depend on 
that performance to drive stock price is huge mm -hmm. and represents a major threat to to the health plans. I, I heard in a discussion this morning that more and more of the health plans are getting very nervous about what might be, and mm -hmm. I think that that's probably right. And don't count out Walmart, right? Costco, Kroger, they've all expressed interest in healthcare, and that could change everything, mm -hmm. and it could happen very quickly. We've got one final minute or two here. Uh, any, anything people should be looking at to do with pharmaceuticals? Big problem. Pharmaceuticals is, is a, a terrible problem, especially because they have so much money to buy lobbying influence with, and they are predica they're predicating their pricing on how much they can get. Mm -hmm. Not not related to the cost of the drugs or the, or the, the the revenues associated with it. I think that we need national policy on that mm -hmm. because they they they've got very very smart people and they have demonstrated over and over that they can't be trusted. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's a pleasure to have you on today, as always, and we'll get you back soon. Okay, thanks for having me, Fred. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.